This is the Energy Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. That's what's going to be, I think, truly transformational to a lot of businesses. And hydrogen fuel cells enable a lot of use cases with batteries. By covering the surfaces in floating solar PV panels, you can not only generate electricity on site, you can actually purify the water. Welcome to this week's episode of the Market Scale Energy Podcast. I'm your host today, Tyler Curtin. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the program. We're going to start off today. Our first feature is going to be a combination of two featurettes, if you will, and they're both going to revolve around solar and wind energy. And so for the first one, I'm going to interview Brianna Perkins. She's a contributor here at MarketScale, and she really loves the energy community and loves diving into these sorts of topics. So we're going to talk about how a school is taking solar energy and really using it to their benefit, both education-wise but also in terms of saving money and in other ways. And so we're going to talk about that as the first featurette on today's show. The second one is going to look at wind energy, and it's going to be with market scale correspondent Sam Kingma. So he's going to dive into wind energy and talk about the public really pushing for more wind energy and more investment into that industry. So we're going to look at that as well. Our second feature of the day is going to be with Klaus Reichard of Waterless Co. Inc. And we're going to talk about the advantages to going waterless and what that means. So stick around for that in the second feature of today's episode coming up here on the Market Scale Energy Podcast. So without further ado and enough rambling from me, let's dive into that conversation I have with Brianna Perkins coming up next here on the Market Scale Energy Podcast. All right, joining me now on the Market Scale Energy Podcast is Brianna Perkins. She's a content marketing coordinator here at Market Scale, but she's also one of our thought leaders in the realm of energy. Brianna, thank you so much for joining me in the podcast. Thank you today. for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are excited to have you. And today we are talking about the Commonwealth Charter Academy. It's a Pennsylvania public cyber charter school that's serving more than 9,400 students in grades kindergarten through 12th grade. But what they've done is they've installed about 1,080 solar panels at its capital campus in Harrisburg. And so we're talking about this school because what they've done is really interesting just in the realm of energy because they've really I've kind of dived in I suppose and really um, kind of gone a different route from a lot of other schools and and just through reading about it I, I think you and I have recognized that there are about three benefits um, to what they're doing and, and the first of which is is really a renewable source of energy with uh, the solar and that sort of thing that, that they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the solar panels that they installed will um, annually power generate about one third of the electricity consumption that they already have. Um, So that will result in about $60,000 in savings, um, which is really awesome. That can be allocated for other educational opportunities. Um, As well as educating students, they're going to have a digital dashboard that will help monitor the energy produced by this project. So it's a really cool initiative and it's exciting to see other schools, um, not only in Pennsylvania, but around the country participating in these type of efforts. Yeah, absolutely. Like you mentioned, it's a, it's a 180,000 square foot capital campus. Uh, and as you mentioned, it results in an estimated savings of $60,000 annually. And I think what's really excited about this is it does help educate students towards a future of energy sustainability where um, students aren't just uh, there in the classroom learning, um, I, I suppose, math and things along those lines, but they, they have an opportunity to actually apply that into a specific area in 
in in uh, energy production and consumption and that sort of thing, which I think gives kind of a broad real world type feeling to it because uh, a lot of times you can struggle to understand how something that you learn in school applies. Well, in this case, they're giving students like a hands-on opportunity to really learn that in this case. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of schools are actually modifying their lesson plans to include education about green energy. And they've really been seeing um, a positive effect with the students and students are really asking for that type of education. So it's been really good. Yeah. And and you mentioned that just the $60,000 that are saved annually. Um, I'm sure there's an upfront cost of the, of the solar panels, but that's not mentioned kind of in any of the stories that we were able to read about this, but the savings every year uh, of $60,000 annually, you can then imagine that that gets allocated to other places into the school. And that's a really cool aspect as well, that a school is saving money, but then they're able to put that back into further education of the kids. And I think that's a responsible thing to do for a school. Yeah, 100%, especially um, now with like various things that are going on um, with teachers. I think it's really awesome that schools are finding ways to save money um, and as well as just educating the students. Um, I just think this is a really awesome step in the right direction for the education system. Yeah, so this is something I'm really excited to see, and I'm excited to see if this trend continues in the future, uh, just as people become more conscious and as people uh, understand that maybe some of these alternative methods of energy are a little more cost-effective than maybe people anticipated in the past. So I intend, I, I kind of anticipate this being a big trend moving forward. I don't know what you think about it or if you think that we're going to continue to see things like this, but uh, you've kind of been looking into this industry a little bit more. Do you intend Anticipate us seeing more stories like this in the future? Yeah, definitely. Um, about 5,500 U.S. schools right now use solar pa- solar pa- power in some form, and I just I do think that that is going to grow, especially with the opportunity for schools to apply to grants, um, and they can also raise money by selling renewable energy credits um, to u- utility companies in their area. So it's just a really awesome opportunity for schools to um, kind of move into a new generation. Absolutely. Benefits on multiple different fronts, which I think is absolutely huge and why this uh, looks to be such a good idea. And we're just using the case study of Commonwealth Charter Academy there in Pennsylvania. But I think that that's a really interesting step that they've taken. And I I think you're absolutely right. Just with a multitude of benefits across the board, this seems like something that we'll probably see more of in the future. Brianna, thank you so much for joining me in the podcast studio today and uh, chatting about this. Yeah, absolutely. It was a blast. We'll do it again soon. Thanks. Hello, and thanks for joining me on today's Market Scale feature. I'm your host, Sam Kingma. Today, our story comes from RenewableEnergyWorld.com. The article is titled, Consumer Demand Drives Record Year for Wind Energy Purchases, AWEA Says. In a report by the American Energy Association, or AWEA, a record amount of wind power has been purchased by a multitude of Fortune 500 brands. This is because of the ever-growing demand for clean, renewable energy by the American public. Low, stable prices have also helped wind power capacity installations rise to be the third strongest quarter in the industry's history. And along with that, over 5,500 megawatts of new wind farms were installed nationally in 2018's fourth quarter. Now, contracted wind capacity from non-utility customers surged to 66% higher in 2018 when compared to the previous 
highest benchmark set in 2015. Wind, in fact, provides more energy to big corporate brands than any other renewable energy resource. The new wind farms that were installed last year were mainly centered from Texas up through North Dakota, which is known as the American Wind Belt. Texas holds its lead as the state with the most amount of wind power out of the 50 states, with Iowa taking second place from Oklahoma. Right now, there are more than 56 800 wind turbines across 41 states, with South Dakota becoming the 19th state to have over 1,000 megawatts of wind capacity. And the strong 2018 for wind energy is looking to continue well into 2019. Wind projects totaling 2,125 megawatts have already started construction with another planned 3,661 megawatts in advanced development for later in the quarter. Right now, wind has a steady 22% year-over-year increase in development pipeline. The amount of public support for more wind power among Americans has also been very strong. Also, the cost of wind has fallen by 69% since a decade ago in 2009, with 7% of that happening in just 2018 alone. That's all for today's story on rapid wind energy growth. If you want to know more for all your energy related needs, keep it here for Market Scales Energy Podcast. This has been Sam Kingma, and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you so much to Brianna and to Sam for joining me for that last segment. I appreciated their insight on those two topics. Coming up next, we're going to talk about water conservation with Klaus Reichard, the CEO of Waterless Co. He's the inventor of the no-flush urinal, which might sound strange, but it helps save venues like Mercedes-Benz Stadium hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And he says that while the state of water is still good, we need to be prepared for what's coming in the future, that it might not always be in this good state that we have it right now. So he talks about just how vulnerable the world's supply of water is and what we can do in the future to really conserve that. So that's coming up next here on the Market Scale Energy Podcast. I wanted to start this interview asking, overall, what's the current state of water in the United States? If you could just give us a brief overview. Uh, I think at the moment, the state of water is still good. But of course, we need to be aware of what is uh, coming. Uh, what I mean is the droughts that we have seen across about 36 states in the last two, three years certainly are an indicator that the state of water is becoming somewhat precarious or more precarious in certain areas. And it is not just the normal drought areas that we think of like Arizona, Nevada or California, but it is actually states like uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania that have problems. And I've noticed that over the past decade or so, uh, cost of water is rising in the United States. Why is that? It has various reasons. Um, one of the primary reasons is that our water infrastructure is old and getting older, um, is brittle or broken. So the maintenance issues for the water delivery 
uh, have become uh, elevated, meaning there is more money needed, a higher budget needed just to keep water being delivered to our facilities or homes. Uh, then, of course, you have regional problems, as I talked before, in regards to water availability. Uh, and actually, with you know increased population in various areas, all of a sudden there is strain on the water resources that are locally there. Uh, places, uh, for example, the Dakotas, that all of a sudden have an increase in employment. Uh, they need um, water more so than ever before. And all of a sudden there is stress on the resources, which in turn again uh, needs either more water infrastructure being built or maintained. And that's where more costs uh, uh, are involved. Um, but that's just really on the water delivery side. Um, I always like to give the example that uh, on a thousand gallons of water, you also need to put in the cost of the sewer, meaning the water you use, of course, uh, becomes effluent, needs to be treated. And very often the cost of the treatment is double, triple, if not quadruple of the cost of water. So in essence, the cost of water is still very low uh, compared to the treatment cost. And our water cost in the United States on average is uh, less than uh, what other uh, first world countries are being charging. Now, switching gears a bit, you are the inventor of the waterless no-flush urinal. Can you sort of tell us how that came to be and how it exactly works? I'd be glad to. Um, uh, I invented the urinals in the late 80s. Uh, there was, I saw a need, I felt a need. Uh, I thought it would be a good business proposal uh, when the first droughts really um, uh, made people aware that there is a water shortage problem, primarily at that time in California. And uh, I became aware of an old patent from the late 1800s out of Switzerland that used a, um, uh, an uh, almond seed oil uh, to do the things so that a waterless urinal can work. The way a waterless urinal works real quick it's very simple. You take a flushed urinal off the wall, remove the flush valve, cap the flush valve, put the waterless urinal onto the existing drain line. So it means everything from the waterless urinal drains into a regular drain line. However, in the bowl of the urinal sits an insert, a trap, that is filled with a sealing liquid. The sealing liquid acts essentially like oil and water. So the sealing liquid floats on top. And in that trap, the blue seal liquid, the sealing liquid, is what makes the system odorless. Uh, in addition, the uh, waterless urinals, while when you hear of it at first, uh, seems not only unconventional, but possibly un unhygienic. It is actually more hygienic than a flushed urinal because it's a dry, it has dry surfaces and bacteria do not grow. Yeah, I know that the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta uses your waterless urinals. Have they reported that like their upkeep costs have gone down since installing them? Um, they have not reported that because it's only been about six or seven months. But uh, from the normal uh, analysis, uh, when the urinals went in, uh, they will save about 40% on the water use and uh, operational uh, cost on urinals. 
and the estimate for the year is about 12 to 14 million gallons uh, just from the urinals alone. Wow, that is a lot of uh, water that is being saved, especially from one major stadium like the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Uh, sort of switching gears from that, have you worked on any other products or designs that help conserve water? Um, no, you know what? It's been the focus really for the last 28 years uh, because the the savings are just so, so great. Uh, and there's still so many urinals out there that can be converted if you figure... Uh, that we probably have about 9 million urinals on the wall installed that use water that still can be converted. Uh, there's an awful lot of work still to be done. <laughs> so it's mostly just focusing on making sure the water uh, urinals become you know, no flush waterless. That's, uh, that's certainly my hope and that's what we're working for. And again, you know, every year as, as more and more people become aware of our product, uh, either having used it, having seen it, have heard it through a podcast like this. Um, they're starting to look at it. And the other driver, of course, is the um, general awareness and interest in water conservation, water efficiency, uh, the rising costs of water and sewer, as we spoke of before. And if you have additionally uh, drought situations locally that uh, force people to uh, look at uh, what alternatives there are, uh, plus the local water districts very often give rebates uh, for our product as they do for other water conservation products or irrigation products. So, you know, slowly but surely, even though I've been in this business 28 years, but slowly but surely people have really become more aware of what the value of water is to them and their communities and plus, uh, what simply can be done with our example of just installing waterless urinals where you normally have a flushed urinal. Could you explain to the audience some of the economic benefits of water conservation for businesses? Every business certainly has a budget and two of the things that they very often uh, have no influence over uh, would be uh, the electrical cost or your other utility costs like, uh, like water. Um, the prices for water and sewer, as we're talking waterless no-flush urinals, uh, certainly have risen quite dramatically. And in some instances, uh, to the point where really facilities, but also primar um, primarily schools and other public uh, institutions have to grapple right now what they can best do in uh, with the budgets that they have. So water conservation, as people call it, is actually a pretty low-hanging fruit, uh, meaning those are the most simple things that you can change over to at not very high costs in order to reduce your water use, your sewer effluent, and to cut costs for the future. So assume you have 10 flushed urinals in your, um, in your building and um, they use on average 30,000 gallons of uh, water a year per urinal. So now you're looking at 300,000 gallons for the 10 urinals. If you can cut that down to zero right quick, um, there's an immediate benefit of the water conservation and there's an immediate benefit of uh, cutting costs. And then of course, 
you're warding off any kind of water cost increases for the future for those fixtures. That's very interesting and really good to know because a lot of people sometimes don't really care about water conservation until it affects them directly. So I think it's important to sort of state to people the economic benefits of, hey, your business can save quite a bit of money, depending on how big it is, by actually doing uh, things to conserve water because that means you know less on your utility bill. Absolutely. Now, could you just sort of explain in your own words why you personally think water conservation is so important? Well, I, I do believe, you know, I do have children and I have certainly seen uh, the problems uh, for water, off water around the world. Um, I have children, uh, have now grandchildren, and it is one of those resources, first of all, that we cannot live without. Uh, secondly, we still have not completely valued what actually water means. And thirdly, for the rest of the world, but also if I just simply look at my family, what is uh, the world for my children and grandchildren going to look like if there is not only less water, but a whole lot less water? You brought up something interesting. You said we don't value what water means. Could you expand on that point? Well, as long as you have uh, a resource available, you usually care less, let's say, about it. Um, it's almost like uh, with, with your car. If uh, gasoline is not only available, you just drive up to the gas station, you put your card in and gas is two or three dollars um, and you can afford it, that seems to be okay. If all of a sudden gas is no longer available, like it was, let's say, with the gas shortage in the 70s and you have to stand in line, and not only do you have to stand in line, but you're not sure if you're going to get some, all of a sudden you become aware uh, and how precarious that resource is. It's the same with water. As long as you open the faucet at home to brush your teeth, as long as you open the faucet to hose down the driveway, uh, to take a shower and it's all available and the cost is reasonable, why would you care? Uh, but it has in general across the world, uh, in some places more so than ever before, um, water availability has become a problem. Uh, we have environmental issues, uh, let's say from uh, toxins going into the water. Uh, we have higher costs in filtering water so that it is potable. Uh, on the other hand, think about it too, we're still flushing toilets and urinals with potable water. It's almost ridiculous that we still do that. So the value of water is uh, in our country not fully acknowledged, but it certainly is acknowledged in places where water is less available or almost uh, not at all available. That's a really great point. All right, Klaus, I got one more question for you, and it's, do you think water conservation will improve in the next 10 to 20 years as technology and waterless solutions are introduced to the market? Absolutely. It's uh, like any other um, resources that need to be uh, preserved. Uh, there is thinking about improvements in water efficiency, water conservation. And, and I think we have to make the distinction, too, between water conservation and water efficiency. One reason is to conserve the water and the other one is to make the use of it more efficient. So to me, they both go hand in hand and um, the drive forward uh, is, is for sure there. We're reducing already 
water use in uh, toilets for the last 20 years. We're reducing it in urinals. We have shower heads that release less water but are still efficient to shower. We have restrictors on our uh, faucets that we reduce water. Um, so we're doing a lot. There will be more done and there will have to be more done. That is all we have time for on this week's episode of the Market Scale Energy Podcast. Thank you so much to Sam, to Brianna, and to Klaus for joining me for this episode of the show. I hope you found it informative. And if you enjoyed it, please uh, leave us a good review there on iTunes or subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to share it around with other people in the industry. We'd certainly appreciate that very much. Also, if you go to the Market Scale Energy page, you will be able to find more content just like this. So a lot more podcasts, more written content, as well as videos and things along those lines. Make sure to go check out all the great content we have there on the industry page for energy here on the Market Scale website. That is all we have time for for this week's episode, but we will be back soon with another episode, fear not. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.